0: And welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, a podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is not Mark Leonard, but I am Jana Polierin, and I am head of ECFR's Berlin office and a senior policy fellow. And this week we are talking about European defense, which the war in Ukraine has put again on top of the European Union's agenda. But will this time be different? The EU has had so many wake-up calls in the past and has pushed the snooze button in response quite often. So what needs to happen to actually strengthen European capabilities? How should the money that seems to be suddenly available for defense be spent? I am very happy to welcome an all-star cast to discuss these questions. I have Gustav Gressel, who is a senior policy fellow at ECFR's wider Europe program, and Nick Whitney, who is an ECFR senior policy fellow, who has served as the first chief executive of the European Defense Agency in Brussels. Thank you both very much for joining. I thought I might start with the strategic uh, compass, the new Document for a geopolitical uh, EU, which was launched on March 21. Um, after a lengthy period um, of drafting, after uh, a lot of conversations. So now uh, we have it. It's supposed to align the strategic thinking of 27 member states uh, and be a foundational document for a geopolitical EU. And Nick I read your recent commentary and you don't seem overly convinced that (laughs) this all is is going to work or make a difference, so what do you think of the strategic compass.
1: Well, uh, thank you Jana and, um, as you say, this is a document that has been the product of many months of. uh, uh, prolonged debate amongst EU Member States, I think it's about a year and a half it's been in the gestation and. Of course, that is that is the problem with it, that it is essentially a document that was conceived and drafted and haggled over um, before Mr. Putin has just changed the world. And heroic attempts were made at the last minute, of course, to alter a lot of the language and, and insert references to this uh, Russian invasion into the document itself, and more especially to complement it with a, a, an up-to-date foreword written by the High Representative, Head of the European Defence Agency, Josep Borrell, in which he underlines the historic nature of the the situation we currently find ourselves in and calls, quite correctly, in my view, for a quantum leap in our approach to European security and defence, the the essence of which, of course, is to break out of the national boxes in which we have all, I say we, I keep on forgetting that... um, as a Brit, I'm no longer really part of this conversation. But um, you Europeans have, for the past twenty years, conducted your defence in national boxes and resisted the calls to integrate and pool efforts and resources and do all the things that we all know we should be doing. Um, and now is a great opportunity—not just an opportunity, but there are there are threats as well which we need to pay attention to—to um, to actually take this seriously for the first time and unfortunately the the body of the compass just doesn't acknowledge that and one of the things that I have um, I have expressed skepticism over is this notion of a new EU response force of 5,000. We all know that we've had uh, EU response forces of 60,000 and uh, 1,500 in the past which frankly have never been taken seriously because the chiefs of defence don't like European defence, and we can talk about why why that is afterwards. And I don't think they're going to take this new project any more seriously than they have past projects. And besides, we're all in a slightly um, confused position these days as to whether Europe really needs an intervention force at all. What is plainly obvious is that Europe needs to think very hard about bolstering its defences uh, against Russia to the east. Um, and I don't find the, the scale of ambition in the the EU strategic compass to, um, to enable Europe to do that.
0: Sorry for interrupting you, Nick. Um, I was just wondering um, that you put such an emphasis on basically the EU and territorial defense and, and the compass, because I thought that EU uh, the EU was never meant to do territorial defense and that's what we have NATO for. So why do you think that the compass uh, should have dealt with kind of that more uh, than, than it does?
1: Well, I'm not hugely interested in um, either the EU or indeed NATO as uh, as prime actors in defence. Um, the fact is that defence is the business of national governments, and they defend that national sovereignty fiercely. The EU and NATO are coordinating bodies which should be able to bring people together to pool their efforts and resources, as they must do. Um, that was recognised essentially by the EU leaders at their Versailles summit when they when they said in their declaration, um, EU defence now needs to be able to face up to the full range of operations and the full range of missions. And that's that's code for saying we need to be able, as Europeans, to stand up to the Russians. And what no one's saying, but everybody should be aware of, is the fact that we only have hmm, two, three, four years to actually get this done. Because the Americans are not going to hang around defending Europe after um, this crisis is resolved. Um, I may regret those words when Mr. Putin goes nuclear or something completely unexpected happens as the crisis evolves. But in my view, it's very clear that we've all discovered that, that the European excuse, oh, we can't possibly defend ourselves against the Russians without the Americans, has just been exploded by the uh, inadequate performance of the Russian armed forces and the Europeans can defend themselves, should defend themselves, and the Americans, even if it's a second Trump administration, will tell us to get on with it as they depart for the Pacific.
0: Right, Uh, so not a good prospect for the European Union, but uh, we are trying to catch up and fill uh, the capability gaps and Nick you already mentioned the Versailles summit in March where European leaders charged the European Commission and the European Defense Agency to put forward an analysis of the defense investment gaps actually by mid-May, and to propose any further initiatives necessary to strengthen uh, our European industrial and and technological um, base. So maybe turning to you, Gustav, um, how do you um, access this whole uh, capability gap that the EU is facing? How big is it? What are the biggest gaps? And so if you were to write a priority list now for the Europeans to catch up, what would be on it
2: Well, I I think sort of conceiving the list is a more banal exercise. I mean, we have done that actually on a technical level since 2014. Politicians haven't paid attention to it, uh, but they could reread what has been written since then. I mean, first of all, things about readiness. Um, The Russian invasion force, as as. Bad as it may have performed, it's still four times bigger than the NATO response force in in its entire size. Uh, So everything that the European NATO members thought on paper, they would uh, be able to bring up in in the case of war or looming war. And we have seen in the very slow deployment and reaction of the NATO response force to this crisis that this is an on-paper performance. It's not what is actually there in reality because... Our forces have been so depleted of vehicles and, and ammunition and spare parts that you need several months to patch things together that you should patch together within 30 days. Um, so basically uh, living up to commitments we have long since uh, committed ourselves to is the first thing. Then, of course, we need to re-establish military capabilities, we all thought were gone because we are now in a new world order and it's about peace and stability and bringing peace and democracy to places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Air defense, air defense for uh, mechanized forces, uh, a lot of uh, suppression of anti- enemy air defense systems and missiles, deep strike, combat engineering, uh, uh, a lot of artillery that needs to be recreated, uh, our artillery is light. It's precise, but there are too few of them too light. We, we, we lack the rocket artillery, etc. cetera. Uh, electronic warfare, um, that's, that's, that's another big bunch. We, we basically need to to reestablish what we have idiotically abandoned. Uh, and then of course, we, we need to look at how this war is watched in, in Ukraine and what does it tell us about both the Russians and about us. And first of all, it tells us about the Russians that they have logistical problems. And if we had deep strike means, uh, we could accelerate such logistical problems and slow them down. The second thing is uh, that like the Ukrainians, we would, if we were to defend NATO, uh, have much more terrain to defend than forces uh, to defend it with Uh, the long front lines that have dominated uh, European warfare actually since the First World War uh, or you. You might say um, they have sort of started to emerge in the American Civil War and then became prominent. They're gone. Uh, neither our army or our armies have the demographic backing of large youth bulges that we can, we can draft as many soldiers, nor the Russians have. They were overstretched in Ukraine already. Um, they would be overstretched in whatever they want to do uh, against NATO. So there will be a lot of terrain that is uh, unguarded and undefended. And you have basically logistical axis along which offenses will commence. And you need to cover these large uh, territories in between somehow with information and with strike power, with firepower, if you want to prevent your enemy from seeing a gap, finding a gap, exploiting a gap and moving into it, which is the biggest problems for for the ukrainians in the south that basically terrain is very easy to where you just can circumvent ukrainian defenses and then push through wherever you want uh, and you can do that sort of uh, first of all you need to have much more reconnaissance means um, not only on a strategic level but on on sort of tactical and operative level to give local commanders the ability to have a look in what is going on uh, next to you, and the second thing is uh, you need uh, long-range strike missiles and armed drones uh, or other uninhabitant means to kind of quickly cover these um, these gaps and and throw firepower at them. Uh, and that, of course, we also have to also have to consider. And last but not least, we have to uh, basically our air forces, especially, kind of re-equip for, for the next battle with an enemy air defense force and an enemy air force and not just insurgents um so this is the wishing list now when and, but, but and because here but yeah?
0: your your blueprint is entirely now uh, the war in ukraine what do you what do you tell um member states um that are uh, less close to to the eastern flank basically and that has have other security concerns and priorities, uh, and that focus very much on the challenges coming from the South. For them, uh, crisis management and fighting terrorism might not be a thing of the past. So do do you think that as the European Union, as Europeans, we can now fully concentrate on getting the capabilities uh, kind of fit for territorial defense? Or do you think there is a contradiction?
2: Uh, Um, To a certain part, there is and will be a contradiction between expeditionary warfare, And, and territorial defense, because you need different sets of forces and you need to train them differently. Uh, but the problem is, I mean, it, a, lot of, a lot of what is coming from the South is annoying uh, and what is coming from the East is lethal. And this, this we need to take into account. The, the Russian aim of reestablishing an empire is not just about law and order. Uh, I mean, they claim basically half of Europe for them. And, and this is a mortal threat.
0: Okay, but maybe coming back to you Nick so um, can't the EU serve as a framework to develop uh, or procure um, kind of these capabilities that are needed collectively and isn't the strategic Compass in, in one of the baskets, trying to develop better mechanisms for the, for the Europeans to, yeah, to do joint uh, development, also when it comes to, to future technology. So um, can't the EU be a framework for that? Also thinking about the Defense Fund and um, the idea that the European Commission gives additional money to make cooperation more attractive. Is that all for nothing?
1: I mean that is in a sense the heart of what the strategic compass tells us about the way it sees forward on uh, on the whole defence industrial technological agenda which is the other which the other big half of the agenda of european defence and basically the the spirit of the document is that member states have known for 20 years that they need to pool their efforts and resources that they need to collaborate more that they need to spend more, spend better, and spend more together. I mean, two decades worth of documents riddled with these um, commitments, but because running defence on a national basis may be wasteful and duplicative, but that's exactly what people like within individual nations. Um, it's what chiefs of staff like, it's what the National Armament directors like, it's what, uh, it's what ministers like. They have resisted this. So we've arrived at a situation where it seems that the only way forward is for the European Commission, which is the only actor at the moment around these, this field, which is capable of taking a big strategic institutional view of these sort of issues, has decided to um, essentially to bribe the Member States with their own money. It may work. I mean, it'll work to the extent that if they put a billion pounds, a billion euros a year on offer, um, you will have uh, member states queuing up to to take advantage of that free money. But it's still a pretty small proportion of uh, the amount of money that has to be spent in the defence industrial and technological agenda uh, every year. Even on current defence budgets, never mind increased defence budgets in the future. And I have to say, I just find it pretty bizarre that we should be reduced to a situation where member states have to be incentivized with with their own money coming through the EU budget back to them in order to take defense seriously, to try to get the maximum bang out of the euro in their own defense budgets. So I I regard this as um, it, it will be marginally helpful, but I don't think it's the answer to to getting member states to actually do what they promised and to pool efforts and resources, and there needs to be much more leadership from the top on that. And as long as we um, have a situation where member states have agreed for 15 years to spend 2% of their defence budgets on research and technology, and that that promise has been reiterated in the Pesco context. And we discover that actually they're spending only just over 1% on research and technology. Whilst Russians and Chinese have unveiled hypersonic missiles, whilst America's latest defense budget increases its budget for research and development by 9.5% in one year, that's the second threat. That's the second threat of our simply getting ourselves completely technologically left behind by people who are determined to establish the technological edge in defense. And I don't think uh, a billion pounds a year from the commission is going to be enough to uh, rescue us from that. I think we just you know, have to do it ourselves or the member states have to do it themselves.
0: Look at the bright side of things. So um, Germany, my country, has now decided to do the Zeitende and to spend this 100 billion euro in addition on defense. Other countries are following. The Danes have said that they will... Um, will want to spend 2% in the future, the Italians um, have agreed, and there seems to be a general conviction in Europe that more needs to be spent on defense, more capabilities are needed. So how do you think um, we can turn kind of this um, commitment that we see into something that is really a game changer? So to how can we now actually build greater European sovereignty? What, what, what would be crucial also when looking at how to spend that money? So maybe Gustav, how would you advise the German government uh, for um, greater European sovereignty? Uh,
2: The problem, I think, is that, uh, yes, in Germany now there's money available, uh, but the problem is trust has eroded beyond breaking point. I mean, uh, especially in the case of Germany, the way it has been dealing with the crisis before, not allowing... Uh, Estonia to to deliver symbolic uh, D-30 uh, howitzers then basically only being pushed into, into arms deliveries by by mounting domestic pressure. But no, having a strategic concept of sort of what do we need to deliver to the Ukrainians to make their defense efforts sustainable uh, has eroded enormous trust. Uh, if you if you look at what is going on, you basically see that the main guarantors of European security are non EU powers, the Americans uh, and the British. Uh, uh, the British effort is is much better than anything any European country can muster. Uh, France is then basically only being pushed into into arms deliveries by by mounting domestic pressure. Uh, and and Germany, although still better than France, uh, is very reluctantly and is not leading. Um, it, is, it is reacting to pressure, it is reacting to demand, but it's not putting forward an agenda, it's not putting forward capabilities, it's not putting forward, it's, it is reacting. So um, how can the EU uh, be a leader on defense uh, if the EU's countries don't want to lead? Um, it's not going to happen. Uh, we will see where all defense interested countries, which is of course Northern Europe and Eastern Europe, will will buy American because this is the key uh, lifeline you need in in a time of war. And even if the Americans don't commit too many of their own forces, this is also the other lesson of the Ukraine war. They need to to have the nuclear. Umbrella. They need to bring their intelligence to bear, and if you have a capable armed forces on your own, you can kind of um, you're in a better position to manage whatever comes there. and And trust in that is there. Trust in Europe is not. Uh, and, and and so I I think that these debates on on strategic autonomy, on sovereignty, etc. It's a thing of the past. Uh, it's gone.
0: That, that leaves me a, a little desperate, because uh, Nick has just said that we might not be able to rely on the Americans forever, that there might be another administration incoming in 2024, um, less positive about Europe, uh, less committed to European security, and you said that basically there is no trust amongst Europeans to uh, yeah, to 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 work together and and to guarantee uh, European security uh, jointly. So, Nick, are you are you as bleak as Gustav is? So there is no alternative to basically trying to. To, kind of to, to make uh, the Americans stay um, in Europe? Is, 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 is European sovereignty a thing of the past now that we finally seem to be willing to understand the challenge of defense and that we are finally willing to spend more, for more money? Um, and if it's not the Americans, so how can we turn this around? How can we make ourselves uh, a more capable defense actor?
1: I mean, I, I agree with uh, with Gustav to uh, to to some extent. Um, I agree with him that trust has been damaged. I agree with him that the nuclear dimension is a particularly um, fraught one, and uh, it's been made no easier by Brexit, of course, because whereas the within the EU, um, Britain and France could have formed the nucleus of a credible uh, European nuclear deterrent, um, with With the Brits out, um, France has only half of that capability to offer. I think I'm a bit more um, positive. I suppose its I wouldn't be so cross about the evolution of European defence over the last quarter century if I didn't believe somewhere that eventually people will follow the logic that they've all assented to and live up to their commitments. And this could be a moment. You will be closer than I am to the... uh, Uh, much closer than I am to the defence debate in Berlin, Jana. Um, But I haven't heard anything very much um, coming out of Berlin at the moment about the opportunity this great access of funding in Berlin could offer to revitalising the um, defence equipment collaboration research agenda within Europe. And I think essentially what we need from leaders is a is a top-down approach because we've spent 20 years where the leaders say it'd be lovely to um to do more integration can we please have a laundry list of ideas from the staffs and what actually needs to happen is is a much more proactive um, approach from leaders because the staffs don't want to produce this and the staffs need to be told i mean The National Armament Directors need to be told we've been spending 25 years talking about a truly integrated European defence, technological and industrial base, Um, you have 12 months to come up with a blueprint from actually creating that and telling us what that will mean in terms of uh, how we will organise it, what contracts we will make with the smaller member states to make sure that all their defence funds don't get spent by the larger member states and the big defence companies, how we can therefore open up a more genuine European defence equipment market within Europe, um, what we can do to um, actually commit ourselves to serious sums of money to how we will spend serious sums of money to uh, get ourselves back on track in research and technology and innovation. And I think that's we need a much more directorial style from national leaders on this. And if it can't be done in, um, in the European Council because um, of misgivings, particularly perhaps from Eastern Europe, then it needs to be done by um, a small number of uh, European member states with France and um, and Germany is the most obvious candidates acting off piste and then deciding what what the way forward is and trying to um, bring in other partners and do it themselves.
0: Uh, I, I want to stick with the bringing in other partners because um, like maybe I'm naive but my personal hope was that now that European security has come severely uh, under threat um, and that people actually feel threatened at least in Germany um, now could be the time also to bring the UK back into, into the game and to, to convince leaders um, in the UK that, after all, um, it might be worthwhile engaging more with the EU and the new uh, European defence initiatives. I know there is a big uh, part of frustration on both sides, but in the end, I mean, I think we need an all hands on deck approach now when it comes to European security, precisely if we take into account that the United States might be less committed in the future. So Nick, how do you um, assess the willingness in London to uh, basically be more open towards the idea of engaging with EU defense initiatives or the EU more broadly as an actor on security and defense?
1: Well, can I just take the example of the next generation fighter aircraft? Because I think that project is a sort of microcosm of, of quite a few of the things I've been saying. This is an example of um, strong political leadership uh, of the kind I've been asking for, um, particularly from uh, France and Germany, also from Spain, the three partners in FCAS. Um, It's also a a locus classicus of the way in which um, the pooling of uh, efforts and resources between defense companies can often be something that cuts deeply against the grain. So this project, FGAS, is only moving forward in fits and starts as the leaders have to yet again bang the industrial heads together to make progress. But they're doing it. It's working. Britain, of course, is excluded. So Britain, of course, has set up its own rival consortium. This would be madness if it worked because it would be a total waste of dividing continent's resources in a way that can't really be afforded. And if both projects succeeded, you'd have Tempest and FCAS committing fratricide in export markets around the world, as Eurofighter and Rafale did in the last generation. Um, myself, I don't think Britain will be able to afford um, Tempest. I think the Italians, who have committed very little real money at this stage, will probably bail out and try to get aboard FCAS at some stage. and. I'm afraid the mood in Britain is not good. The economy is not in a great shape. We've lost 15% of our trade globally, not just with the EU, but globally as a consequence of Brexit. And we're suffering as everybody else is from uh, what's happening with energy and from, um, and from the demands of the uh, social programs, welfare benefits, um, which are, are inevitably going to soak up more of our resources. So I don't think you stand a chance with this government, but pray God, this particular government will only last for two more years. And then I would hope that leaving aside the sort of higher strategic and political issues, which might be more difficult, the simple necessity to collaborate better on industrial projects and and in the research sphere will provide the opportunity. But I think you may have to be a little bit patient
0: Yeah, but at least uh, there is uh, some hope, even if hope is not a strategy, but I think um, that is as good as it gets for now, uh, because uh, we are nearly at the end of our podcast already, but there is one thing left to do on this podcast, and this is our bookshelf section. So what's on your bookshelf, Gustav?
2: I have not been reading anything properly, uh, except for war reports. Um, Maybe you
0: can give us a hint, what's the best source for war reports then? I think it's quite a timely topic. So, any recommendations? What are you What are you looking at when you well, want to get information?
2: There's of course Rohan Consulting, which sort of was was extremely helpful uh, during uh, during the buildup of the war. Uh, now it's basically a compilation of various Twitter and Telegram accounts uh, that that I've been following to to make uh, myself aware of what is going on and what is not going on plus people on the ground um, who, who write what they see
0: right I think we all understand that uh, you basically as a war explainer <laughs> very it's, present right now uh, I think around the world when it comes to the thickest book on my
2: desk is the military balance but... <laughs> okay
0: I think I can do with that uh, the military balance so um, what do you currently read Nick
1: well, I'm afraid, like Gustav, I'm—I'm I'm, um, uh, my appetite for tomes about the future of the world is pretty limited at the moment. So I'm taking resort in history, really, and um, just enjoying reading about the Thirty Years' War and enjoying reading about um, Napoleon marching into Berlin and humiliating the Germans, and then reading about uh, the uh, declaration of the Second Reich in the Versailles Hall of Mirrors in at the end of the Franco-Prussian War, and just trying to draw from this some optimism that the vision of uh, Europeans actually, um, not merely refraining from evading each other, but actually getting on with pooling their efforts and resources, establishing the mastery of their own destiny, and uh, looking out on the world with a unified view, um, is something that will survive. And uh, I, I think hope is not just, uh, um,
0: <laughs> so it's you not basically... just
1: permissible, it's it's an, a necessity.
0: <laughs> so you basically take comfort um, in the fact that we survived so far, we made it as Europeans. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that uh, th- th- there is hope. So maybe um, I have a book that um, I have not read yet, but um, I will be on leave for the next two weeks. And I'm planning to read it because I think it's the most timely book there is. Um, It's East West Street by uh, Philippe Sands. And I think it's an attempt to put genocide into words. Uh, Kind of, it takes place in Lviv. amongst other um, cities, and it's uh, a family memoir. It's, it's talking about war atrocities, about genocide, um, and about the region um, that keeps us uh, so busy. And uh, Philip Sands is one of the most uh, well-known kind of international uh, lawyers for, um, for human rights. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to, to reading this. It was highly recommended uh, to me. And uh, maybe I have the opportunity in a future podcast to tell you um, how good it really was, but I'm uh, I'm looking forward. We will put a link to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. And if you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let other people know by writing about it on your social media page or on ours. And above all, hopefully, please give us a good rating and review on whichever platform you use to download this podcast. But for now from Gustav Gressel, Nick Whitney and myself Jana Puljerin it is goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Lucy Hauptenthal and the editor of this week's episode is Leonie Müller.